Alright, it's been a while since I've got a chance to read some reviews, so why don't we go ahead and start the new year out with that. Put us in the right mood. Let's see our latest one from SJ Winters. Hey, SJ Winters. I wanted to love it. Huh. The host is too low energy and not very good as an interviewer. However, guests were compelling and offered great content. I'll keep trying. Huh. Well, that's all right. Yes. Can't please everybody, right? Let's try another one. This is our second to last review. Okay. Oh, I say in the title, Guests Make the Podcast. Whew. Well, this sounds good. All right. This is a good podcast only because of the value the guests add. The host is an awful interviewer. Parentheses, I'm sorry to be blunt. Close parentheses. With such little energy and unpersonable. His follow-up questions oftentimes come off as rude or irrelevant. I've taken away a ton from many guests from this show and feel with a better interviewer, there perhaps could be more enlightening conversations. Uh, uh, well, oh for two. I guess, you know, can't please them all again, right? Hey, you know, 2021 is definitely going to be better than 2020, right? So let's pick another review, our third latest review. Let's see. Amazing content. All right. Fatizzle. This will be a very honest review. Great. I love that. All right, here we go. This is one of the best business podcasts I've listened to and gets into the nitty gritty of entrepreneur life instead of glazing over all the tough spots. Austin asked the right questions. Finally, someone, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so Austin asked the right questions to give us a good idea of what the guest on the show went through, but I cannot stand when Austin keeps interrupting the host. I guess you mean guest. And a lot of times he tries to put words in their mouth. He should listen more and not feel the need to try and recap what the guest is saying or add his two cents because he worked in commercial real estate. But he finds amazing guests, so keep up the good work. But I hope you stop interrupting your guests. Hmm. Hey, it's, it's all right. Just last three reviews there. I mean, I'm just trying to help people, right, Austin? Well, I guess I got to work on my uh, low energy, guys. Um, you know, if anyone has anything positive to say out there, you know. And actually, I'm here to announce we've got a we got a new interviewer. I mean, that's what these people said they wanted, right? So, you want to meet him now? Here, I'll go get him. Hey guys! I got the eye of the tide. It's your new energetic and enlightening host, Austin. What's up? I promise not to recap what any of our guests say or add my two cents in. And I promise not to talk about commercial real estate and put words in people's mouths. If anyone had anything positive to say and wants to leave an Apple podcast review, that'd be great. But it doesn't matter because I'm high energy Austin. I wonder if the last three people are Jets fans. Are you just upset that you got the number two pick and the energetic Jaguars got the number one pick? Guess what, guys? All you NFL fans are going to be sucking our ding-dongs over the next 20 years because you know who we got? We got Trevor Lawrence, and he's an energetic guy, too. So let's get on with this episode. 
16, we installed these mixers and eventually we got into Target. And so like we were dropping off mixer deliveries to Target stores in our cars at like four or five in the morning and then going into our day jobs to go do like financial models during the day. We want a horror story. Yeah, the language is like almost funny. Like you'll look at some products and like even outside of beer and you'll see like naturally flavored with other natural flavors. And it's like, what? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And people don't talk about that enough. We were living like this kind of double life, which was a little bit exhausting, but you know, there just wasn't enough business yet to pay the rent. And you know, we'd rather spend money on marketing than on our own pockets if we could. So everything that we got, we just put into more larger mixer runs or more marketing dollars. My name is Ron Alvarado. I'm 32 years old and I'm currently in San Francisco, California. CEO of Fixed Beverage Company. We're a company that's been through a lot of iterations, but our kind of main theme has always been building a better for you bar, as we call it, and trying to make cocktails healthier. And currently kind of what we're best known for these days is we were one of the first companies to launch a hard seltzer, which we did this back in 2018 was kind of a nothing burger. Nobody knew what the category was. And frankly, not a lot of people we spoke to or pitched the product to believed it would really go anywhere in terms of the category. But today it's burgeoning, but a pretty huge category in the alcoholic beverage space. And so what we do is we make a hard seltzer using real fruit juice for flavoring. We were the first to do this. And so that kind of provides a more authentic taste as well as more authentic ingredient panel compared to some of our larger competitors that you know might use some faux ingredients a bit more liberally. So we're excited to kind of be growing in that space. Again, kind of bringing low sugar, low carbs to the bar. We also make a line of cocktail mixers, which was kind of our first foray into the business life. And so, yeah, we're just kind of trying to be that group to bring healthier drinks to the bar. And we're kind of a relatively small team compared to some big breweries doing this right now. But we're thankful that we were one of the first ones here. And we think we make a really great product. And the business has been through some exciting times in the last Last year. So excited to talk with you about it. So yeah, you launched in 2018, you're saying? Yeah, we launched our hard seltzer in 2018. We started as a company a few years before that. But yeah, 2018 is when we launched the seltzer, which was very, very early days for seltzer, probably maybe five or six brands at the time. Right. How many brands do you think there are now? I get a Google alert every morning, <laughs> adding a few more on. <laughs> I count it's over hundred now. Frankly, I believe it's probably over 150. And now you're getting international as opposed to just domestic here in the United States. So every major brewery seems to be putting out a hard seltzer and some companies starting just to make hard seltzer, which is kind of what we do here. But in the course of two years, it's absolutely exploded, which has been a crazy thing for us to see. And frankly, I don't think a lot of people saw it coming. So do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing for you? It's a good thing. It's frustrating because two years ago, I would walk down. We have this kind of main street here in San Francisco called Fillmore Street. And I would walk down with these hard seltzers and we didn't have a distributor or anything. We were selling it ourselves. We were distributing ourselves. And whether it was distributors or retailers I would talk to, they'd say, I have no idea what that is. Hard seltzer. I don't think this is going to be a thing. Like, good luck with that one, guys. And so it's kind of just a different way of getting told no <laughs> two years later, where now everyone's like, oh yeah, this is a huge category. But now there's so many that it's hard to have your voice heard in that kind of large crowd. So I think it's good that it's proved the category out. I give like a huge amount of credit to the leading brands in the category for building it. Because if they didn't build it, then we wouldn't really be able to compete in it, given that we were kind of so small. And so I think it's net a good thing for us, but it's tough to have been in a category for a couple of years and then just seeing everyone from Coca-Cola to Molson Coors and all those other big guys getting into it. 
just thinking, I've interviewed some guy who actually started his own brewery business. He was just talking about just how difficult it was because anyone who knows, knows the beer business, they basically like make small breweries kind of go away if they're coming out with their own brands. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's a competitive business, so I get it. Like you look at what's working and you probably emulate it. But I mean, the interesting thing was like the leading brands in this category are really big companies. Like White Claw is the company that makes Mike's Hard Lemonade. You know, truly is Boston Beer, which quote unquote, a craft brewery. But these are global breweries that really led the hard seltzer space. There were some small brands. There was an initial one called Spike Seltzer that got acquired by AB InBev, and that has since been rebranded a few times, and now it's called Bon & Viv. But that was kind of like the first ones into the category that we saw. And then you just kind of get acquired or you try to grow, but most people get acquired. So it is tough to see these big breweries, especially now, two years into the category. It's kind of become a bit of like all these also-ran brands just coming out with a seltzer. Literally, it's just whether it's Bud Light or Coors, you're kind of just putting that on a seltzer can. There's not a lot of product differentiation. It's a lot of brand differentiation. So that's tough having been there for a couple of years, but we get it. You can only move so fast when you're a small company and the big ones need to stay big. They're finding opportunities where they can, especially with overall light beer and beer kind of getting hit pretty hard in the last decade. Yeah. And I was only bringing that up. And in case anyone's wondering, that was episode 67 with Jamie Price of Great and Beer. Like I think he did get acquired by Anheuser-Busch because he even asked me to edit part of it out of the episode out where he was talking shit about them, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I'll do that to help you out if that helps. But again, if anyone <laughs> wants to check it out, that's episode 67. And again, I'm bringing it up because I'm like wondering from your perspective, if that's going to be kind of a same thing that's already happening with you or if you're like worried about that, because he was again, just saying how hard it was to even expand because those guys are like any small brewing companies. It seems like they always had issues with the big boys. Yeah, well, hopefully he sent you a nice thank you gift for taking that out once that contract was signed. Yeah, it's tough. We are like inherently independent. I mean, I, me and Mike, my co-founder started this company in college and really came into it as outsiders wanting to really prove that two guys or anyone can come in and do this and compete. And as every year you get a little bit wiser and you see how things are structured and how there's some headwinds that are kind of inherent in the industry. And I think it's tough for a small brewery to compete against these big brands without some pretty strong strategic partners. And I think if you got into the hard seltzer space right now, like if Ron and Mike decide to do this right now, I don't know if we'd be able to do it. I think our head start from being an early adopter, despite being a small brand, was kind of the only way we could be where we are today, competing with these big brands. I think it's tough to find other routes out of it than eventually partnering up with a large brewery, but we're going to try to go the opposite way and take kind of the route less traveled. But it's tough. There's multiple layers to it, like distributors that you work with, prefer to work with a lot of big brands, which can be more of a track record there. It's more reliable. It makes sense. It's tough, I think, to be a real individual craft brewery. But so far, we've been competing pretty well against these big groups, but we'll see kind of what the future holds. It's Mike and Ron. It's just the two of y'all who own this business. Yeah. So me and Mike were college roommates here in the Bay Area in California. And so we're the primary owners of the business. We've brought on a little friends and family money over the years just to kind of buy the cans and kind of make some inventory, uh, but haven't raised any outside money. So we're, we're the primary owners of the business. And we're really happy to now have some great employees on our sales team that help us kind of expanding out into more stores. But you know, overall, it's me and Mike kind of started this off and we're going to kind of continue growing it on terms of headcount. And we're happy, especially in 2020, to have been able to actually add people to the team. And hopefully that kind of continues this way. Yeah. And how old are you guys again? 
I'm 32 and I think Mike is 32 as well. He just had his birthday a couple months ago. I think we're both 32. And I mean, we've been doing it since we were 21 in terms of this idea rattling around in our heads. So it's been, we're a little older than when we started this thing, but I think we're still pretty fresh in the industry given the 10 years experience, but yeah, both 32, I believe. Well, yeah, hopefully, you know, your age, I guess we're guessing on mics, but it should be close to you. But I was just pointing that out too, because you're two younger guys too in the industry, right? Yeah. I'm just wondering about that, if that's been an issue as well. It has. It's an old industry. One of my favorite books is called Bitter Brew. It's essentially on the history of AB InBev, and you just go back. What's AB InBev, just so everyone knows? Oh, sorry. Uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev. And BEV stands for beverage, right? I can't say 100%, but I'm guessing so, right? Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll Google that for you as you go. Yeah. Fact check that one. I could be wrong, but it's essentially, it's Budweiser. And at some point they merged with another global brewery a few years ago and they own most brands that you would look at and frankly not know that they're owned by them, but it's a major brewery. And the book is really about this group started not dissimilar to Fix. Eventually you start somewhere as a small group and whether it was pre-prohibition and these are hundreds of year old companies that have been able to adapt and learn the industry as it's changed. And so we understand that there's a benefit to working with these kind of larger more established companies. But I'd say that because of the category of hard seltzer being so new, it hasn't hurt us as much as we'd originally thought it would. There's a bit of a learning curve. And I think that it's tough to be in your early 30s in an industry where a lot of breweries or large established brands are kind of spearheaded by people who have been in the industry a little bit longer. But because our company is older than the hard seltzer category, it's kind of a different vibe where they look the people that are the core consumers for this category, which really is kind of me and Mike for a lot of the expertise with it. And so we found that our retailers have been really receptive to kind of hearing where we think the industry is going. And thankfully, we're kind of right on the industry becoming a thing in general. And so that's kind of given us a little bit more credibility, despite kind of being on the younger side. Yeah, no, I mean, I could definitely see that because if it is a new category, it's obviously new, right? So they aren't used to it. And if you guys are into it and you're younger and it's like your demographic who's consuming it, you guys are almost the perfect guys, it would seem like, versus if you're starting your own brewery, it would seem like, right? Yeah, like we're drinking with your core consumers on the weekends. And so it's like, it feeds our product pipeline. It's helpful to have your kind of ear to the ground like that. And, and all these big companies, I'm sure have you know, employees that are tied into that as well. But we lived the category before it started in terms of trying to make better for you drinks. And so we think that we were ahead of other groups with this. We think there's no reason why we should have to be older. We clearly kind of saw something before the people that might have had a bit more experience were able to identify it. And why is it called Fix? Good question. Probably the number one email I get. <laughs> so that goes back to our whole concept of trying to make the bar better for you. Me and Mike looked at the alcohol category when we were in college and thought that it was a little crazy that there weren't nutrition panels like you would see on your other food or beverages, or there were very opaque ingredients where you weren't exactly sure what you were drinking, even though you knew it was alcohol and you could feel it. We said we wanted to really fix this category. So it's kind of play on the word FIX and really make it more transparent, let people know what they're drinking and prove to people that really the best taste comes from authentic ingredients as opposed to like a bunch of sugar or natural flavors. So it's a play on the word FIX. We're trying to make that a little bit clearer with marketing, but definitely the number one question I get these days on emails. Right after I said that, I started trying to make guesses and I'm like, I came up with why, why you were talking right there. Not that I wasn't paying attention like everybody else is right now, but I was like fruit in can. And then I can't come up with anything on the KS. So if you can come up with something on the KS, you know, maybe that's. It's one big acronym. No, I wish we were that smart. This FX. Well, there's some companies that you figure out that you can come up with an acronym later on. You know what I'm saying? Like Adidas. 
Yeah. I mean, there's plenty that do that. I figured I had to ask. That's why I was making sure when I was saying it's Mike and Ron. I'm like looking at your last name. I didn't know his last name, but I'm like, no, that's why I was trying to figure out exactly. I mean, I like it and you got a good look, good design and everything on the can. So it looks great. But again, I was just wondering kind of how that flowed. So tell us about overall your company today, like how many people you have and distribution where people could find it and whatnot. Yeah. So we still have a really small corporate team. I mean, we're less than five people in terms of, I mean, we're not in the office right now. We're all working remotely and we'll generally meet a couple times a week just briefly to kind of go over some things. But we run the whole company really off of Zoom and remote right now in terms of the people in the corporate office. And then in terms of salespeople, we have about seven salespeople now who are out kind of visiting our retailers that, that we're in right now, trying to kind of prove the data story to them. We've partnered with a great brewery here in San Jose to kind of help us out on the production side after we did this all ourselves last year. We'd bought production equipment and fermentation tanks and the whole thing. Had some great industry expertise to kind of help us along with that. But you know, a lot of our time last year was spent producing. And so thankfully, we were able to find a great brewery partner this year to help with that. There's kind of 20 or so people that are really core to what Fix does every day in terms of being Fix employees or really direct partners with us. And that's definitely needed now as we've been expanding a lot and we're based in San Francisco, but now we have distribution throughout the state of California, as well as Washington, Arizona, and most recently, Texas. Thankfully, you know, a lot of big retailers have been receptive to trying fix out and it's been doing really well. So you go to places like Texas, we're sold in HEB and Whole Foods. Again, in California and Washington, Whole Foods, Safeway, Target, Costco, places like this, where we think that the product has really been able to get us through those pitches. Because again, we're not a huge brewery that would traditionally be customers of these retailers, but we kind of just had to create a really good product to somewhat sell itself and get us into these. So we've been expanding in a good way and adding headcount this year, which we're excited about. And we're going to be adding more next year as we hopefully expand out to some more states and some more retailers. And how much longer till you leave California? Me personally? Yeah. I mean, I'm joking around because it seemed like everyone does. I don't know how any of y'all live out there, to be honest. <laughs> it's been a rough couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it's been a smoky year here in San Francisco. So I grew up in California. I love it here. I love the people here. I love San Francisco. So I won't be going anywhere anytime soon. It's been pretty rough. But as a company, we committed to being here in California just for where our production is, as well as like Mike and I, when we started making our alcohol and our product, we really took kind of a winemaker's approach to this as opposed to what other hard seltzers did before we kind of came into it. And I mean, being by Sonoma and Napa and these places is kind of just a little bit of like a nice thing for us to be able to stay near the industry and with people that are kind of into some new products that we might be making. So we'll be here for a while, I think, even though it's been nice to kind of expand to some new areas that frankly have taken off faster than some parts of California. Like Texas seems to really love what we're doing and we're just kind of following the opportunities. Yeah. I mean, I was just kind of joking around by being serious too, at the same point that I've had a lot of guests who've like moved from California or even I think we read in the news how many people like businesses are just from a government like taxation. Yeah you know, issue. I mean, personally, if they didn't have all that, I know how beautiful it is, right? The weather and everything like that. But it's just like, if you own a business, that seems like the hardest part of dealing with all that stuff over there. It is. I've heard the other side of it, but where I stand is it's very hard to run a business in California for those reasons, in terms of business taxes, some headwinds that the state puts against you that you'd think are counterintuitive to growth. But then at the same time, we have a massive like intellectual capital pool of just people and resources in the state where there's assets here too that are helpful in building a business, but the state does make it pretty tough. And so I'm sure you've talked to these people too. And I think you'd interviewed someone on in kind of the mixture space that had moved out of California. 
and Nevada is, is a hot spot now. Texas, it seems like I'll talk to people in Austin and they're like, all of you are here now. <laughs> it's just endless California people. So there's an interesting thing going on in California right now, whether from certain policies that might have made it harder for businesses to grow at a certain point up to a certain scale or strictly just what's happening now in terms of the weather and climate change. Like California is in for an interesting decade here, I think. And we're happy to be here, but I don't not understand people leaving. There's big incentives to go to these places without the tax burdens that we have here in California. Hey guys, Energetic Austin here. You know what? The new year is here and marks a fresh start for your small business. Whether you're shifting business hours or hiring more remote employees, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. You know, one of the features that I love about LinkedIn Jobs is how I can quickly find a candidate in my geographic area. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Post a job with targeted screening questions and LinkedIn will quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. Manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar LinkedIn.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. And now you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. Visit LinkedIn.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Email Octopus was founded in 2014 to help anyone with an audience grow. Their mission is to provide email marketing that's simpler, more intuitive, and better value. They're committed to saving you money and never compromise on deliverability. From self-published authors to food blogging superstars and charities to online stores, they've helped over 56,000 organizations send more than 11 billion emails. And guess what? You can check it out now for free. So it's free for up to 2,500 subscribers. And great if you're just starting out with building an audience or have a smaller one. All the essential tools you need to get started with email marketing, including customizable signup forms, autoresponders, and list segmentation. Affordable pricing from just 20 bucks a month. It's a user-friendly platform that's quick and easy to set up and navigate in seconds. Email Octopus also integrates with thousands of other apps, including landing page builders and so much more. Great customer service whenever you need it from real humans. Easy to use automation for setting up welcome emails and drip campaigns, such as email courses. You know, what I like about Email Octopus the most is the straightforward pricing that scales with your business. And guess what? Right now, Email Octopus is offering our listeners 50% off their first month. Visit emailoctopus.com slash millionaire or quote code millionaire dash 50 at sign up. Again, for 50% off your first month of email marketing, visit emailoctopus.com slash millionaire or quote code millionaire dash 50 at sign up. And yeah, that was episode, again, I try not to plug too many of these just so y'all can check them out later after this one, because obviously this is going to be a fantastic interview, right, Ron? <laughs> How am I doing? 
<laughs> okay, so far, we'll have to pick it up. Episode 175 is the one he was talking about, the co-packer for Smoke and Mary, trying to find a co-packer. Just again, same thing with her. And I've talked to other people who are doing wine or whatever. It's just like, there's kind of multiple reasons too, why moving from California. It's like, if you had distribution in the central United States, it's much easier to get your product everywhere. But really, again, I was just looking at it from an, a business point of view, not a, I mean, I think from a lifestyle point of view, it's probably like the best place to be really, you know, if you're just thinking of weather and everything else. But then when you keep adding on certain things, it just, I think it pushes enough buttons that eventually that's when people leave. You have enough negatives wrapped up against you, but especially if you're from there. I mean, like I said, I'm from where I was born and raised. So just trying to get your understanding and perspective on that. If you ever feel that heat too, or get that pressure from other people or investors, you know? Yeah, no, I do. And it's interesting. It's anecdotal, but every one of my friends, when they have kids, moves out of California to a T. It's pricey and it's hard to live here. Um, so I, I do understand kind of, especially on the business side, people heading to greener pastures sometimes. Well, that's funny because I actually wrote down, and it was kind of a random question, but I really did want to know, what's your rent like? What's your monthly rent for your place where you're staying at now? So as you may have heard, San Francisco is wildly out of control for rent. We don't have enough supply. <laughs> it's gotten really pricey. So I pay you know, about $2,500 in rent to live in San Francisco. There's not much else. If you want to live in the city, which is where we work and where a lot of our accounts are, and it's kind of equidistant from our production facility and storage facility, and it's kind of been here for a while, but it's too expensive. And San Francisco has done a poor job of keeping up with the growth that we've seen from the tech industry in the last 10, even 20 years or so. And so unfortunately, a lot of people are leaving the city of San Francisco and moving to more suburban areas like Sacramento or kind of the East Bay area where now rents there are going up, but it's like out of control here in San Francisco. But I think they're down a pretty good amount since COVID started. Yeah. And that makes sense because there's a lot of people leaving, I think, San Francisco. So again, that's one positive too, but everyone keeps leaving. For you, it seems like it maybe was overpopulated or maybe had all those people there. If people are leaving, then rent's going to eventually have to come down. So that's one way to look at it. Yeah. Like that was happening before COVID. Like people were leaving for a while just because it's, you know, eventually it gets, there's an expense, but then there's, is the expense worth it? And I think San Francisco had a tough time keeping up with making it worth it for people to stay here. Well, yeah, thank you for that insight from a, someone who's living there and born and raised there. And were you born and raised in San Francisco? No, I was born in Sacramento, which is about two hours away from San Francisco. But San Francisco was always fun for us because it was kind of like the big city. Like we'd come here for Christmas and do some shopping or we'd get here a couple of times a year. So it was always kind of like the biggest city near us, but really kind of enjoyed growing up in Sacramento, which was a little bit more slower paced than San Francisco. And not to knock San Francisco, it's probably my favorite city in the world and things will get better here. But it's just kind of been a rough few years with things getting expensive here. And by the way, when you say small for most people, the Sacramento, I just looked at the MSA. Oh, yeah. It's two million. <laughs> So like I had one guy on here who's telling me about a city he grew up in and it was like 15,000 and he thought that was big. It's always about perspective. Great point. Yeah, you still grew up in a big city for most people. This is very true. All relative. And yeah, it's the capital. So I, I shouldn't call it small, maybe small relative <laughs> to Manhattan right. or like the Bay Area. But yeah, I definitely hear you. It wasn't not small town living at all. And honestly, a great place to grow up. I try to get back to Sacramento as much as I can. It's like a nice break from the city life sometime. Okay. So you grew up there. And then why don't we reel it back to you saying you kind of started the business coming out of college. So why don't we just say where you went to school and then we'll go ahead and walk along the timeline of how you started this company. So yeah, I went to school in the Bay Area as well, a school called Santa Clara University, kind of like a smaller Jesuit college. Um, I'd gone to a Jesuit high school and just kind of continued the path forward. What's a Jesuit? 
It's like a denomination of Christianity, but not like an overly religious school. Just like, I guess it's a group of, you know, denomination of Christianity that's created some schools around the world, like Georgetown in in Washington, D.C. is a Jesuit school, I think Boston College, and then Santa Clara out west. So it's just kind of, I guess, like a, a group of priests or denomination of Christianity that's kind of set up a lot of educational institutions around the world, frankly, but a lot domestically here in the United States. Okay. So is it like being a Catholic? I mean, I'm just curious. I'm sure other people have this question too. Yeah. That's why I don't even, when I say denomination of Christianity, I might even have that wrong, but it's essentially Catholic. I mean, we grew up Roman Catholic in my family. And so it's essentially the same thing. It's just, there's a lot of like this group of Catholics that identify as, as Jesuits have set up like a lot of schools kind of around the world. Okay. I didn't know if it was a branch of Scientology or something like that. <laughs> Not that I know of, but <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> they're a fun group. So whatever they're doing, it works for me, but it could be, I don't know. So now we've talked about religion. We can talk about some other drugs and politics later on. But yeah, so you went to college there in San Fran and then tell us about maybe meeting your co-founder there or whatever happened from there. Yeah. Me and Mike, we lived in a house together junior and senior year of college. And, you know, we did all the normal college stuff. We were active. We went to school, obviously, and, and went out a lot. And we kind of got this bug on our ear of like, we were drinking these things. So like Four loco was big. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same here. Those are glory days. Those oh, were the glory so days. Oh, they're so good. I looked back on those so fondly. <laughs> like, oh man, so much Four loco. Just like stuff like that, where it's just like these random drinks and We'd obviously drink whatever's cheapest, light beers. But then we were just like thinking one day or one weekend when we were probably a little bit hungover of like, man, there's like a lot of sugar in these things or like what is in these drinks? And we kind of had this idea of maybe you could make an alcoholic beverage that had a little bit better ingredients that could make you feel better the next day or cut back on some of these bad things. So we weren't drinking so many carbs. And, and that was kind of like the inception of it. And, and frankly, we didn't want to get real jobs after college too. So there was a motivator to like, rather than go into finance, which we ended up doing because, you know, our ideas didn't pay the rent back in 2010. We had this idea of like, what if you made alcohol healthier so that you could feel better on the other parts of your life? That was literally 10 years ago at this point when we kind of kicked that off. Yeah. And just to pause on that again, too, everyone understands this four loco thing that is F-O-U-R-L-O-K-O. -O. Multiple times I'm trying to- I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I was just making sure because you and I, I guess that was big while we were in college, but some people might have no idea or how, you know, the right way to look for it, but- I missed out. Dude, yeah. I think it was about two years of like, they did not get in trouble, but you'd have one can of this thing and it must have been the equivalent of a 12 pack. And coffee. Yeah. And you could feel it rotting your teeth as you drink it. Like there's no doubt. Like you were saying those kind of things. Imagine just like, I don't know, taking all the worst sodas you can and putting alcohol in it. And then it would get you feeling right. That's for sure. And I don't think anyone ever really found out what was in it. I just know they had to stop making it the way they were making it. Kids were, you know, having a little too much fun. And I literally know people who bought literally cases of that thing right when they said they were going to get rid of it just to stock up as much as they could. I tried one maybe a couple of years ago just for fun, like to see if it, and it tastes horrendous now. Was it different? It does not have the same effect at all. Oh man. We know the same person. I know a guy that got just cases of it before it got off the market, but yeah, it had, it did all that stuff, that stuff bad to us. And we thanked them for it. It was so good. I remember like coming home on like winter break one time and there was like a Wall Street Journal article about it. My dad's like, you guys need to be careful drinking these four locos. It was crazy. And so that was alcohol to us when we first legally started drinking alcohol was like all this different stuff. It could caffeinate you. It could be lighter for you. It could taste a certain way. And me and Mike were just really interested in that. We're like, 
why can't can it be a little healthier maybe? And so we kind of went that way with it. That's kind of where the idea started off and it kind of went a few different ways, but it's never really changed for us in terms of always just trying to make alcohol like a little bit better for you where you can while knowing that obviously alcohol is still a dangerous thing inherently. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have it. People are going to have it. Right. And this is what separates the doers from the dreamers. I could imagine there's like millions of college kids who are thinking that same thing. Because again, I could feel almost like I'm not just saying this to make your company even sound better, but it's like if you drink a Coke or whatever without, I feel like I'd have to brush my teeth afterwards. Like even now, and same thing with that type of drink, you could see how much I don't want to look at what the nutrition was on the back, but it might've been like a thousand grams of sugar. It felt like, to be honest. So ignorance is blessed. Yeah. So it made sense that what you were saying is like, okay, can we get something that tastes good? That's not like beer and, you know, lighter and do something and imagining there's a lot of kids who probably thought this way, but what separated y'all then as far as like how you were going to start approaching it and building the business? Yeah. And that's a really big threshold, I'd say for anyone that's ever started a business. I have like crazy ideas all the time. And, you know, then five years go by and you see it on TV or something like, oh, I thought about that. But like thoughts are uh, useless. But in terms of a business, 99% of the business is a lot of hard work and actually going out and doing it. And so, I mean, we were in this room talking with friends about this idea. And then we were kind of the ones that decided, all right, we're going to actually go do this. I think being young and doing that was actually helpful because we were ignorant to how difficult it can be to turn an idea into something not only that like exists, but is like a viable business. I think that there was a certain like helpful ignorance for starting off fix in the early days where it's kind of like, look, this thing of healthier drinking matters to us. And it seems to matter to people around us. Let's just like keep walking down that path until maybe we run out of money or we do do something else. Let's just play this out and see where it goes. That was probably the big difference. Like me and Mike were willing to go and risk things to do that as opposed to just kind of letting that idea sit and say, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. Just so we're on the same page too, originally when you kind of kicked off, you're saying that you're really kind of started only two years ago, and but this is 10 years ago. So can you tell me what the difference is so we understand that? Yeah. So it's kind of a big timeline for fix. And so me and Mike graduated and we had this idea, but ideas don't necessarily pay the rent. And so we had both majored in finance and economics in school. And so Mike went and worked into finance, as did I. And really, we both worked full-time day jobs until the last couple of years. And during that time, we were trying to find ways to apply this idea of better for you drinking and some of these were failures and some of has led us to the hard seltzer space. But where we kind of started off was like, I'd say the first time we ever really started selling something as a company, we had this idea of kind of taking this concept of better for you drinking and creating like a bitters product for your cocktail that had vitamins and electrolytes in it. And so kind of like adding in essentially these vitamins into your drink to try to help you, you know, feel better the next day. It was like we ran like an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign for it to raise money to do our first production run. We created a video. That was the plan. Like we were going to do this bitters thing and it was going to be this huge product and people were going to be healthier drinkers. And what's bitters? You'll see it a lot of cocktail bars where it's kind of just a, like a dash of flavor of something. And so it's a very small serving size that you'll put into a drink, usually to add like a little bit of flavor to a cocktail. But in our case, it was essentially like water with vitamins with a little bit of flavor in it. We had you know, like a lemon flavor and a ginger flavor. And so something where you would make your margarita just as you normally would. And then you would add in like a little dash of fixed cocktail fortifier lime is what the product was called. <laughs> That's a quite a name. <laughs> the whole thing was a mouthful. <laughs> it was like... Say what the name was again originally. It was fixed cocktail fortifier. 
And then there were like four flavors, I think, maybe three, but it made so much sense to us at the time. And I think that it kind of like, thank God we were self-funded and we kind of take small bets on that where, I mean, the product launched and we got into some retailers, like we got into Nordstrom and Bed Bath & Beyond and like places you've heard of, but nobody understood what the product was because it was like this tiny little bottle and we didn't have any marketing money. And it just like, wasn't a good way to use a product. It was like weird to just add this vitamin thing into your drinks. And so we played that out for like a year and a half. And how much money did you put into it? Oh, I mean, not a lot relative to today, kind of what we spend on R&D, but I'd say like, this is all out of our pockets. So it was a lot at the time. It was probably $10,000 to like out of our pockets, get things rolling. And then we raised $40,000 on this Indiegogo campaign, I think. It was 30 or 40. And then we just kind of bootstrapped it from there. Like we used all that money to buy the glass and buy the ingredients. And then we would just kind of do progressively larger runs of it as we sold it. So it was probably like maybe 10 grand out of pocket. And then this Indiegogo was kind of our first place to like go raise money and start selling it. I'm looking at it. So it's, do you call it an eyedropper or something like that? As far as the type of thing that it would come in that you would drop? I mean, you could think of just eye drops, for example, or something. Is it, was it just a plastic thing that we just kind of squeeze into the drink to add the vitamins and whatnot? You would literally just pull the cap out and pour some it. There was no like fine instrument for it. Yeah, so to squeeze it just to make sure there wasn't too many. And this is the last episode I'm going to plug. This is episode 45. A guy is called Drink B4, the letter B and the number four. And he made something kind of like this, like you're saying that instead of putting it in your drink, but it was more of a like, it gives you the vitamins, electrolytes, whatever. So you don't feel as hungover, you know, the next day, if you will. So same use cause, it sounds like different way to deliver. Right, exactly. And now I'm looking back, I didn't know I had so many alcoholic beverage type companies on here. It's kind of funny, but I just think, especially anyone who's getting in this space, I like trying to reference some episodes that are kind of within the same category to try to help you out. So yeah, we're more fun in the alcohol space anyways. So yeah, you tried to make in this and what happened eventually here? It just didn't work out. We'd get some customers and we'd get into the stores and wouldn't sell that fast. And it was moving a bit slow. And we just looked at it and it was just like, we kind of used this metaphor of trying to like jump over like a big chasm and you can't do like one huge leap. Like you need some spots in between that you can land on and then work your way over there. And that product was too big of a leap for people. Like it didn't make sense. We couldn't explain it to them. There was just no way you could put that on the shelves and people would just understand it. And we went too far with our like better for you drink idea. What we did was we wrangled that in and tried to find a category that already existed, but we could kind of apply the same idea. And that's where really it led us to cocktail mixers, which was our first successful product and our first product that we still have out today. I thought you were just going to come up with the idea of selling water. <laughs> since, I mean, that, I since, that, since that's good for you, <laughs> you're like you could put it in plastic bottles. All the San Francisco people probably wouldn't like that. Oh, no. We don't even do straws. <laughs> yeah. I get in trouble if it, there's any one use plastic here. So I've learned the lessons here too. So you decided to pivot into making, what are you saying, cocktail mixers? Yeah. And that was, it ended up being a really good decision. It was a category that already existed. And so there was no need to like explain what this cocktail fortifier is or whatever. There was too much for a small company to explain there. Whereas mixers, it already existed. Like we could just make it healthier and then explain to people this is a healthier cocktail mix. And so what we did was we took the calories out essentially, like half the calories and did about half the carbs of other mixers out there. While at the same time, like using real fruit juice for flavoring and keeping everything all natural. And so we kind of went into like what was a sleepy space of cocktail mixers and just tried to make it better for you. And that's really where we got some traction finally was like people have been wanting this. People have been cutting calories and carbs from food and beverages everywhere. We knew it was coming to alcohol eventually. And the cocktail mixers were kind of our first place to prove that out. 
And so now, I mean, our mixers are, I mean, we're one of the best selling mixers in Target stores and we're in a like, Safeway and a couple other chains. So the mixers are now successful and kind of built on that idea from the fortifiers, but was a more like adaptable product. Like people already knew how to use it. Whereas the one before was way too much of a mental leap for people and for us too. It was just a bad product. What year did you do this and make the mixers? I think this is 2015. So I think this is about two years into doing the fortifiers. We realized this isn't working or a year and a half in. And so we tried to pivot over to the mixers. So it was about 2015, we launched our first mixers. And how much money did you have to raise for that? So that we had like money from the fortifiers as unsuccessful as they were. So had some money left over from them. We found a co-packer in the Bay Area to help make the product uh, and they had pretty small minimum runs. And so again, it was Mike and I took money because we were still working our day jobs and we took money from, we'd save from our day jobs and took the money from the fortifiers and kind of breathed it into like a second life for the company. And so were your day jobs, both of y'all, just still doing finance? Yeah, still finance. Mike was doing investment banking and I was kind of on the real estate investment side, real estate investment brokerage, like radically different things than what now is, I guess, called a side hustle. And so 2015, 16, we were selling these mixers and eventually we got into Target. And so like we were dropping off mixer deliveries to Target stores in our cars at like four or five in the morning and then going into our day jobs to go do like financial models during the day. We were living like this kind of double life, which was a little bit exhausting, but you know, there just wasn't enough business yet to pay the rent. And you know, we'd rather spend money on marketing than on our own pockets if we could. So everything that we got, we just put into more larger mixer runs or more marketing dollars, whether it's trade shows or whatever. So we were still pulling double duty for both of us. And did the companies that you were working for know you were doing this on the side? A little bit. So I was living in Orange County when I first graduated college and I was working for a real estate brokerage firm. And that was really early R&D days on the cocktail fortifiers. Like we weren't spending too much time doing it. But really when I moved to San Francisco, that's when we'd launched the cocktail fortifiers. And I remember like one of the first days where I was working at the company up here, we got like a San Francisco Chronicle article. My photo was in it. I think I'd mentioned it to people before because it, it was, it was just a kind of a fun side thing. It wasn't a business and some people let loose by going bike riding or whatever. And me and Mike did it by getting our business jollies with a fun little startup. The cover was blown for me and Mike. It's a weird balance because these people, they've given you a huge opportunity to work for them and you deserve to give them your best. And we always did. We always gave 100% at our day jobs. But at the same time, you have this thing in your personal life that you really want to play out and see how it goes. It was a tough balance. And we'd get some comments all the time of like, oh, how's your little mixer business going? Or how's this going? And it was just, we'd kind of just like downplay it. And there wasn't much to play up at the time until you know eventually we had to make the decision to go full time. And that's when it really became a part of our lives in terms of our every waking hour, we're doing this. Whereas before it was really kind of a balance where you know, you'd go into the day job and you'd concentrate and you'd do the best you can at that job as you should. And then once you clock out, it's back to fix and get back into it. But you didn't go full-time till 2018? 2019, actually. Okay. Yes, it was only about a year ago. Last June, I took the leap. And that was really as the seltzers were getting big. So eventually it reached a point where there was just, you knew that we'd start dropping balls if we weren't spending more hours doing this. Like the opportunities were too big. The regret would have been too huge if we'd missed something. But I got a question. My balls dropped when I was 15. Is that <laughs> not the same with you? Uh, I don't know the exact day, but um, this was a different kind of thing. 
Yeah. Well, so it's 2015 because that's why I just want to make sure too, because there's people who have day jobs who are trying to think the same thing. You don't want to, like, you can't get four hours of sleep and still perform well at your regular job because it's still like a, an important job. It's not like if you're doing financial modeling too, you, your brain has a, yeah. you know, be in it versus like if I'm doing yard work or something like that, you can have a mental break. And I've talked to plenty of people. It's like, you always have to look at the advantages of the job that you have now. It seems like at least for yours, you're making good money. But again, you couldn't come in there tired or else you're not going to be able to perform. But I'm mowing a lawn or something else Why I'm doing it. Like I might be physically tired, but mentally I could still be there if I'm doing my side hustle. So it's just something to keep in mind. And thanks for like kind of mentioning that because there's only so much time you can do. I mean, there's plenty of guys your age at that point who are probably playing like Halo or Halo 2 or whatever. So you're just dedicating those hours into this business. I just want to hear a little bit more about being able to juggle that and how you're able to. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And people don't talk about that enough. There's a certain take where a lot of people say, if you're not 100% in, you're not in at all. Like you have to go and jump. But then there's the realities of your life where you need to pay rent or you have personal relationships with people that you would lose if you spent too much time doing a business. And so you look at all these things and you weigh them and you say, what's important to me? Like, what do I want to do? And some kind of where me and Mike arrived at that was we were both extremely grateful to our employers to have great jobs. And so we wanted to make sure that we were giving 100% at those jobs. While at the same time, you have to also give almost 110% at this fixed job because there's only two of you and you're really trying to do the impossible against this competition. So, I mean, we sacrificed a lot of our 20s, Mike and I, doing not fun stuff, like moving pallets around when people would go off to get go to grad school or move somewhere. Mike and and I couldn't do that. And we had to stay and work on the business and be up at four and do these deliveries. And so we made that choice for the logistics of our lives, kind of, in order to have the relationships we wanted with the people in our lives that we cared about, as well as paying the rent and not eating ramen every day. We decided to kind of sacrifice a large part of our personal lives in our 20s. And I think kind of taking that normal path forward as you try to do in life, we kind of paused a lot of our lives in order to make both these things happen. And I'm happy that we did because we looked at it and said, look, if it doesn't work out, fine. We go back to the day jobs and everything else will be there. But we didn't want to sacrifice the people in our lives. And so we wanted to keep having that time. So it's a weird balance. And I would say that like eventually it reached a point where you talk about getting tired mentally. Like I was tired mentally where it was too hard, you know, balancing out target pitches with financial models or just knowing that like there's maybe a meeting in three weeks that you know you can't be at because you have to be at your day job. And Mike thankfully took off about a year before I did. And so you know Mike was able to do those in-person things, but eventually we reached a point where you just couldn't do both. And we did it to the max of what you could, but eventually it was literally impossible to do both. And in the end, we thought that what we wanted to do every day was working at fix. And so it took the jump finally. Were you working on weekends as well? Because I know you said multiple times you woke up at four. What was the routine then? Yeah. So during the week, Target was like a big customer for us for the mixers. We didn't have a distributor. And so we'd wake up around four, get in the car. I would do my drops in the South Bay area, which is kind of where I worked during the day. And then Mike would handle kind of like the city of San Francisco and some other North Bay areas. Mornings were generally like deliveries or a little bit of like creative work. If I didn't have to do a delivery, I'd be doing some accounting or some marketing stuff. So mornings were kind of made for fix. Then during the day, you know, nine to five, that was over in the finance jobs. But then immediately right when we're off, literally from the point I'm on the train home, I'm working on fixed stuff again, like catching up on stuff from the morning, some emails, working on stuff for tomorrow. Were you working on fixed during lunch too? I would get lunch with coworkers sometimes, but yeah, sometimes I would cut out for calls and work on that because if target buyer calls or somebody calls like... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, you're going to pick up. 
you have to do it. And those are the tough parts where it's, it's a little anxiety inducing, where you want to make sure you're addressing everything where you want without, you always want to make sure you're giving hundred percent to your employer and, and which we did. That was a little bit tough. We would get a lot done on weekends because the de- the kind of the weeks were like logistical. And then the weekends where we'd really try to like move forward on things. Me and Mike would get together on Saturdays and just work for like 10 hours. What time on Saturdays? It was like eight or nine. It wasn't too early because we'd been up pretty early all week. And so we'd get together and just kind of have like a normal day at Mike's house because he had a bigger house than me and it was more room to spread out. We would actually get most of our work done on weekends, either in terms of like traditional office work or like going and doing tastings to try to get some more customers. Would you do the same thing on Sunday too? Eight or nine at his house? Yeah, we'd work all weekend and we try to keep like four or five hours at some point to like see friends. Because you want to, you know, not fall out of touch with your friends during all this. And so I think we balanced it pretty well. But yeah, the weekends were work days, like in every sense of the term. Yeah, and I appreciate it because there's little specifics. Sometimes I don't get to jump in as much. And because you're still like a younger dude, it's like you still remember a little bit better. Whereas if I'm interviewing someone older, they might not remember those specifics. And these are the things like what happens if you're meeting him at noon on Saturday, like where you work in two or four hours. It's just different ideas of people like you can wake up before work and work, right? If you really want to. And then that's why I was bringing up during lunch, you can get whatever. And if you have a regular job too, like you easily can go take calls. It's not like you have to be chained to your desk. Even if you missed a call, just go to your car or something like that and go take the call. So oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. just because you take a 10 or 15 minute break, which I think illegally you have to every once in a while, you know, that you can use that to still start your own business. So I'm just trying to help people understand if I didn't know if this is what you're really good at, of like managing your schedule and your time, because it sounds like you'd have to be in order to get this thing going. Yeah, I became good at it. I wasn't good at it before, but like kind of necessity was a mother of invention here. And so we just had to figure it out. Wait, did you make that quote yourself? No, no, definitely not. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm full of cliches. I'm a walking cliche. (laughs) Gotcha. There's a movie I was watching earlier where they said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And the guy's like, whoa. He's like, damn, that's deep, man. Did you come up with that with yourself? (laughs) And he's like, no. No. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to stay at the 2015 and then kind of move year by year for the rest of it. Is that when it's, it's not called fix yet because this is something else? No, it was always called fix. Like even the cocktail fortifier was fixed cocktail fortifier. So, I mean, from the day we got the LLC, this was always fix. And so this is the fix mixers, right? That we're talking about, right? 2015 at that point. And so how long did we go doing this? Because again, it sounds like things worked well for you starting here. Yeah. So the mixers worked well. I mean, this was something that when we got into stores, it sold well, whereas opposed to the fortifiers, we got into stores and they wanted us to take it. So it was going well. And and Target was a huge thing for us. Like, I mean, that, that effort that me and Mike put in working those mornings and doing deliveries, we essentially were proving to target that this sells okay. Like we would build wooden stands to put into Target stores because they didn't have shelf space. And we would like build these stands, paint them white, make them look nice as you guys could and put them into Target stores that would bring it in. And the sum of months and months of those early mornings like proved to Target that this belongs on their shelves. And the buyer, thankfully, which is uncharacteristic of really large companies, but seems to be pretty characteristic of Target, took a chance on something that he believed was a good product and brought fix into all of California for the mixers. And that was a big, big, 
kind of watershed moment for us where we saw that there was something here, there was some traction. And so that kind of period between where we launched the mixers and launched the seltzers of like call it 2015 to 2017 was like kind of a quick build of the mixer business, mostly in target stores, but also trying to get it into some other chain retailers like Safeway or BevMo. That was kind of what we did for those two years was just trying to build more business, get more stores, get more flavors on the mixer side, which is traditionally kind of like a sleepier category in terms of how many mixers are sold every day on shelves. And so by the end of that kind of two-year period, we were trying to think, okay, like what can we do in terms of like another product line that maybe is a bigger category or a little bit more fun, aka put some alcohol in this stuff than, than the mixers. And so that's when you started the seltzer stuff. Yeah. We started that in like 2017, probably in terms of knowing what we wanted to do and the R&D for it. That was about 2017 where we started saying, I think hard seltzer is going to be a thing. Let's try to make one ourselves. Were they called hard seltzers then? They were called spiked seltzers. Because I always wondered too, because I had to Google that right when we started. I'm like, why the hell is it called hard seltzer? I always thought it was like alcoholic Sprite. You know, that's the way I always thought about it. No, pretty close. I mean, some essentially are. The first brand, as far as I know, it was called Spike Seltzer. They're in the Northeast, you know, small independent company that I believe essentially started the category. And then eventually after like a year or two, this is like maybe 2018, maybe even 17, sold to, again, that AB InBev, Budweiser. That's kind of where we say the category really started when a big brand got its claws on a spiked seltzer at the time and started getting it into some big grocery stores. By claws, do you mean white claw? I didn't even mean it. Clearly, I'm thinking about it too much. (laughs) I'm trying to help you. I appreciate it. You're a step ahead of me. Energetic Austin here again. And you know what? No matter what stage of life you're in, thinking about your financial future can evoke some pretty strong feelings. But did you know that people who work with a financial advisor feel more at ease about their finances? Ended up with 15% more money to spend in retirement on average? Now, thanks to Smart Asset, the service that over a half a million people have trusted to find an advisor, there's a free and easy path to help you find greater financial peace of mind. Smart Asset has built a safe, easy, and convenient tool to find vetted financial advisors in your area. So stop tossing and turning and take action today. Here's how it works. Begin by taking Smart Asset's short quiz which I actually did. And it did raise some further questions and concerns about my own plans. You know, within a few minutes of taking that quiz, Smart Asset will match you with three pre-screened fiduciaries, each legally obligated to act in your best interest and each willing to do a no-commitment financial consultation. They'll also send you a free personalized retirement planning guide with actionable advice so you can feel confident in your next steps. Take control of your financial future with Smart Asset. To receive your free personalized retirement planning report, go to smartasset.com slash inspiration. Your report will provide personalized insights on your retirement readiness. So visit smartasset.com slash inspiration today. My last name, which is... It's a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family, they're billionaires. So that's you. I'm the other branch. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you want to be. So if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire, well then join Patreon today.
Also, if case anyone was wondering, seltzer, it's, it's, it's because of seltzer water, right? And then the hard part is because of alcohol versus, you know, I guess if when you combine the two, so we understand. Okay, so you start that 2017. I was just curious, even with the mixers again, because this is one thing we haven't even touched on at all. And that this is something that became eye-opening in an episode about making mixers, if you will. Like you say you own the distribution and everything. Like talk about the trials of going about this because you told us you do finance. You're not in the beverage business. Like what do you own? How do you come up with this stuff? That's a whole different thing we haven't even talked about yet. We didn't know anything about it going into it because, as you said, a different background. So we actually found uh, a woman whose name is Grace Venus here in Santa Cruz in the Bay Area, who is like a rock star flavor developer, like helps make beverage and food products for some big chains. Like when you see like private label stuff in grocery stores, like she'll help with that. And so we'd reached out to her on the Fortifier, like in 2012 or 13, to help us with getting flavoring and sourcing ingredients and stuff like that. We had help on that from day one on getting that together because me and Mike, we knew what we didn't know. And so we tried to bring in somebody to help with that. And so Grace was really helpful in terms of like getting the mixer flavors done as well as like the fortifier. But once we got to the seltzers, it kind of changed where, I mean, we kind of knew what we were doing, but also it was a very different product. And so the seltzers, we actually did fully ourselves from learning to make alcohol to learning source the juice to the flavoring. So that was kind of where we really brought everything inside. And that kind of shocks companies we talk to when we tell them that we do, like we just released a new mango flavor and that was all Mike. Like he he just has become a whiz with this stuff. We do basically everything in-house now in terms of product development, but thankfully we had some help on the kind of the initial stages. Why would that lady help you with the other, even forgetting about the fortifier, let's just talk about for now on, I guess, if you don't mind, just the mixer and the seltzer, just so it makes it easy. Yeah. Why would she even help you with the mixer? She was just really cool. I mean, we paid for it as well. So she has a business where she does this for other people. Yeah. How much? It wasn't a lot in terms of what you could pay other companies to do this. I'd say it was like a couple thousand dollars, maybe. That's not bad at all. No. Especially if she has all this background that you're saying, because I did Google her. It does seem like it. I figured this was kind of her business, you know, and I figured she wasn't going to do it for free. But for me, it's like if she was so great at it, I was you'd wonder, like, why doesn't she just start her own beverage thing, you know? Yeah, she has her and her husband have a distillery in Santa Cruz now, which is awesome. I mean, we got the grandfathered in grace rate on that, whereas I'm sure she charges more as she should. But we lucked out finding someone that amazing kind of in our backyard. I mean, that was like a 45 minute drive from our college campus to Grace's, uh, her lab. How did you know her and how do you find her? Because again, these are little things that you know, you didn't know that. It it seemed like it'd be kind of hard to Google. Maybe it was easy to find, but it was hard. Okay, good. Again, for anybody, if you can find an industry expert on what you're trying to go in, especially if you don't know that niche. Obviously, that's worth a lot more than the couple of thousand. Oh, yeah. Like you can pay on the back end big time if you don't find the right person to produce your product for you or to flavor it. It might seem like a lot of money up front, which it can be. But like if you don't have somebody that, that does it well, then you're just back at stage one. So we I started Googling, obviously, and found a few different businesses and some could do some things, some couldn't. And I think it was just a Google eventually with Grace where we just knew that this felt right with her and she had the experience and knew what she was doing with it. But it could have been like a recommendation. I, I can't remember. It was a little too long ago at this point. Yeah, because I wouldn't even know what to really Google. I mean, maybe if you gave me a few minutes, I could figure it out. But it's hard to figure out how you would find that person. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The terminology. Yeah, we didn't. <laughs> right, like, exactly. The terminology was like flavor house, which was like what these things were called. And we didn't know. We were Googling like making taste for cocktail mixers or something like that, where it's like you just don't know what to search. 
and eventually we figured it out. But yeah, I mean, it was tough. I'd say like finding co-packers for the mixers was tough too. Where, I mean, that's really word of mouth in the industry kind of, because people are kind of quiet about which co-packers they use. That was one where, again, Grace hooked us up with these co-packers. And so that was really just like, I'd say for people that are starting out doing this, like finding an industry expert can be helpful, not only in what they're exactly contributing to you, but like the connections needed can save you like a few years in terms of terminology or other things that you might go down a wrong path. Yeah. So I agree with you. Finding this grace lady, like it's one thing, like she helps you make this beverage that you haven't even started, right? You're making a sample, like a sample product. Anyone who's maker product, you got to try a sample. But then it's like, how do you find someone who can manufacture it? And you're saying everyone's quiet on it because if they have their own manufacturers, they're like, they don't want to tell you. And that's something I don't think you can really Google very, I mean, maybe you can now, but that seems even harder than finding grace, to be honest. Yeah, it is. And more can go wrong there too. When you're physically making the product, like a website can be one thing, but like once you visit, you get to know maybe how safe they are with product and what they can handle. And so like, if you're not going to make it yourself, like finding that manufacturer is probably the most important thing in terms of our business. And I would assume like most food and beverage businesses. Or any product business, to be honest. It's like, if you get the wrong manufacturer where they start cutting things, and it's like your product name on it, it's, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. It's like my iPhone falls apart right now. I'm probably going to want to get an Android maybe. Like that's everything. Like the product quality is everything. And so the people making it, it's hard to find them. Like they do have some websites, but it's more of like you want to find the right person in the industry that really knows how everybody operates and the quality that they can make something at. So that's a tougher, like finer science for sure. We've been through on the mixers. We've been to two different manufacturing facilities and have learned from both of them. And thankfully are at one where we think it's pretty permanent now. Okay. Now you have to tell us what you learned from him. <laughs> so we want a horror story? Yes, that's exactly what we want. That's why I'm here, right? Let me tell you what Ron's done wrong. So we had a smaller manufacturer, which means smaller minimum runs, which is good for the, at the time, pretty broke fixed guys. <laughs> like we were just getting to the mixers. And so we needed somewhere that would do small amounts of bottles because we only had so many that we could pay for. We went to a facility that for this is okay. It didn't work for us when you get to the stage of like working with like a Target or a Walmart or groups like that. But for proving the concept of your mixer business, this was great. And it's a nice group of people. But we had one run where, and I think this is winter of 2016, we were doing like a big, our biggest ever cocktail mixer run at the time. How many? I can't remember the number of bottles, but the amount of money that we'd spent on it was $25,000. Do you have an estimate of how many bottles? Just rough. Maybe like 50,000 bottles because they're about $2 each or something. So it was like by far our biggest investment in making products. And we were going to sell it to a few customers like Bed Bath & Beyond and some other ones that we were working with at the time. And this was a big thing for us to do this run. We did the run and everything seemed to have gone pretty well. And then as we always do, the product's kind of sitting for a while just to make sure there's no issues. This time something changed where the caps were like blowing off of the glass bottles, <laughs> which is not is what's supposed to happen. And what was happening was like, we always make all natural products. We don't use preservatives. And so what we, instead we do is we use what's called a hot fill process where you fill with such hot liquid that it kills everything inside. But what had happened is they had filled at a low temperature and not properly pasteurized the bottles. In the couple of weeks where this was sitting for me and Mike to make sure that everything was going smoothly, these just started essentially like almost fermenting and just becoming carbonated in these bottles as they were basically just spoiling. So the largest run we'd ever done on the mixers, all the money we had to put into inventory just went bad. It was all gone. 
and we couldn't sell it. We couldn't get our money back. We just burned $25,000, which was everything. And this is like right before Christmas too. And so it's like me and Mike, I just remember we went back to Sacramento and we're like sitting with my parents, just like telling them about this. And it was just like, I won't swear on your show, but it was like, what the fuck are we going to do moment? That was like close the doors moment. That's what I was thinking in my head too. I'm like, fuck me. That sucks. There was just seemed like there was no way out there. And we hadn't been at a point like that till then and haven't been since, thank God. But we spent all the money. We don't have product to sell to get the money back. We're done. And so thankfully, we were able to come out of that and like bring in a little bit of money from friends and family to like do mixer runs again. We talked to that manufacturer and basically were like, they hadn't had some certain, they had the records on the temperature, but it was too low. And so we kind of learned from that. If we're going to start doing bigger runs, like we can't afford to be here anymore. And that's where I get back to finding somebody that can make the product the way you need it to. Eventually that was going to go really wrong. Like we barely survived that like $25,000 run. But if we started working with these big retailers and doing fifty, hundred thousand dollar runs, like you're done. You can't come back. Like you can't go and thankfully raise some money from some family to get out of that. We're like, we gotta get out of here. We found a new co-packer who Grace told us about. Thankfully, she's always there when we need her. And now we're at this place that, you know, is everything's a science. They have proper records, everything's just perfect. And we've been there for years now. But that was probably the lowest point of fix ever was sitting in that living room in Sacramento being like, this is probably done. So what happens? Like, do they give you any credit? Dump it. I mean, yeah, I know. I understand that. But financially, do they give you any credit or, and obviously I think everyone would see why you're going to go somewhere else, no matter what, <laughs> after that, <laughs> like you're not going to give them a second chance, but I'm trying to think of what recourse you have, if any. You know, you have a little bit because you paid for a service that wasn't delivered. You paid for product that was safe and drinkable to be delivered. And again, these were good people. It was just, we got over our heads there a bit. And so they were nice enough to work with us where, I mean, we didn't pay the fee for that one. We obviously ate the cost of the bottles and the ingredients and everything that went into that, but they worked with us to work out of that. And so that, what would have been $25,000 hit, like you take the co-packing fee out of that, that's where we start clawing back a little bit and start, you know, having some money to function. They worked with us, but that was a very clear thing for us where it was like, you can't continue to be here. Like you kind of survived here, but you got to get out. If you had to do it over again and get anyone who's making a product like this, what would you do differently? Would you have done like a not that big of a run? Because it seemed like everything else had been going okay up till that point. I think we still would have done it. Like everything was going fine. And how many runs had you done before that with them? A few, I don't know, four, five, six. See, yeah, that's the thing. That's when we're talking about manufacturing any product, this is stuff that can happen. It's not your first one. It's not your second. It sounds like you had at least three, maybe four runs with them. So it makes sense. Why couldn't they do a bigger one? So why did they not do the temperature hotter? <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> they took the temperature. It was just too low. We were looking at it with them after. We we're like, that's not proper temperature. They're like, yeah, it looks like it might've gotten filled a little cooler. I mean, they had it written down. It was just, the, just not hot enough. And we learned things about there's certain caps you can have that can help that margin of error sometimes. And so it was just one of those things where like Mike and I were finance guys and we came out of this, you know, we find a manufacturing partner and like, we didn't know to ask certain questions. And I think that, so some of that goes on us where we don't throw that group under the bus because they worked with us and nobody else would when we were that small. It was just, there were certain things where we didn't know the chemistry of what exactly was happening here. We understood the pasteurization. We knew the temperature one, that one we knew, but it just became, 
became something where you just knew we couldn't continue staying here or this would happen eventually again at like a larger size and then we're really screwed. It can go well for a while until maybe you're rolling the dice on something. Maybe your cap wasn't perfect or maybe you just haven't heard from a lot of customers that there's something wrong. But if there's like any inkling of something maybe being able to go wrong here, like you'd think that eventually it will. And there were a little too many of those things where we were. So that's why we kind of moved into this new facility on the mixers where now everything's totally buttoned up and we're really confident in it. What was the temperature difference that they were supposed to put in and what it ended up being? Like a 20% difference. That's a pretty good margin then. It wasn't like one degree. Yeah, a cool day in the facility and got a little cold or something. Yeah, it was. (laughs) That's significant. It was significant. I agree with you. Like when you're talking about margin error, I'm like, damn, maybe if it was only like two degrees, maybe, you know, that sucks. But obviously we're talking 10 plus degrees. And those were some, like, these are the caps popping up like a few bottles, but like there's, we can't put something out there if we think there's any sort of inkling that this is an issue. So we just had to get rid of it. Yeah. Your business not only fails, then you're personally probably going to get in trouble. Right? <laughs> so that's an issue. Yeah, probably. All right. So you go to, it seems like everything works out on there. And then thankfully, I guess you got money from parents and friends again to keep that going. Yeah. We're able to help with that co-packing fee, but not having to pay that. So that made it less of a hit. How much is the co-packing fee? Oh man. I don't remember what it was on the mixers. Maybe it was like, I don't know, 10 to 20% of the cost, which could be off. It's been a few years since we've done that, but it's a decent amount. It's like on the $25,000 was a few thousand dollars. It wasn't nothing. Like we needed anything we can get at that point. It was helpful to get something back. I was thinking maybe you got back like even 50% of it, but you're saying maybe you only got back like 20%, 30% of that money. That sounds more right. Yeah, like 20 to 30%. In terms of like how I remember us feeling getting the money back, I feel like it was around 20 to 30%. Yeah, because even if it was half, you might feel like, a, okay, it wasn't as bad. Yeah, I can tell in the pain about the percentage that you got back. <laughs> just, just, just in this story. I'm like, how would I feel if I'm talking right now? I feel like probably about 20, 30%. <laughs> yeah, 20 to 30 sounds about right. I think you pegged it pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a finance guy too, so I'm reading your mind. All right. So you go over to the new co-packer and then is this where you also start doing the seltzer water at the same place or the hard seltzer? Excuse me. So the seltzers we make like at a separate facility, kind of like where the mixers ended up is we went to this other facility, which is fantastic. And they do products for people like Coke and Pepsi. And you you just, you couldn't ask for better safety protocols at this place. So we've been there for a couple of years now and they're just churning out great product, safe products. And so the mixer production is now like humming and we're really pumped on that. That's found like a great home on the seltzers. They don't do alcohol up there. It was like a different thing. And when we started doing the seltzer R&D in 2017, we kind of looked at at seltzer and said, we think that this is going to be a big category. Like, let's try making this. So I made the alcohol in my studio apartment. I learned to make alcohol in 2017, basically to kind of kick this off. How do you do it? Basically just convert sugar into alcohol. I mean, anything you have with some sugar in it and some yeast, you can convert into alcohol. So I was messing around with like various fruit. So I did like blackberry alcohol, alcohol from oranges, alcohol from grapefruits, which is the worst thing you would ever taste. It's disgusting. We were just trying different things and saying like what comes out as a nice kind of tasteless but smooth alcohol base for a seltzer because we were trying these hard seltzers and they tasted really like chemically and had like a bite to them that we didn't like. And we thought a lot of that was the alcohol because they were just kind of fermenting pure sugar into alcohol. And so we wanted to take more of like a winemaker's approach, which is why we kind of looked at like grapes and oranges and different fruit to try to ferment those instead into like a nice, smooth, neutral alcohol. And so I would basically go to the grocery store, which had like this, you know, those machines that makes the orange juice for you. It's like those cool things to look at. It had that so you could get fresh orange juice. And I would bring that back to my studio apartment, basically mix that up with like water 
and cane sugar and yeast and put it into like maybe three or four of these 20 gallon jugs in again, the studio apartment, San Francisco, not a big space. And they'd ferment for a couple of weeks and each one would have a little bit of a difference to it. So I could kind of tell, test out different things. And so for like the whole year of 2017, and even like a little bit into early 18, like my whole like whiteboard in my kitchen was just these gravity formulas and ingredients and ratios and the just endless reading of books and watching YouTube videos of how to make alcohol better. And I'd put it next to my radiator to keep it pretty warm. So it would ferment faster. And it was essentially the most ghetto process you could think of. But over the course of a year, like learn to make our specific type of alcohol pretty well, which ended up being kind of a nice, smooth, tasteless base for the seltzers. So you make this alcohol and then do you pour it into seltzer water? Yeah, we'll pour it into still water, actually, and then combine that with like fruit juice, which is our our unique thing. And then we'll carbonate the whole mixture when it's all combined. And so it's kind of once you get it all together, then you kind of carbonate it as almost like the last step. How do you carbonate it in your studio apartment? Soda stream, (laughs) a little plug for a soda stream. Because this all worked out perfectly almost for you, because at this point, well, actually, it's a little bit before that, but people were like brewing their own beer at home, right? I, I saw a lot of people doing that. So I can figure out in my head, okay, how you're kind of doing the alcohol and doing these different fruits. But then, yeah, SodaStream, I guess, came out around that time where you can carbonate stuff very easily versus, again, you going to a manufacturer right away just because you had success in the mixing company. Like, you know, this is, again, kind of something different. So you're kind of, like you're saying, doing a ghetto run at it, but at least you had these materials, maybe... A couple of years beforehand, I don't think there was maybe necessarily soda stream where you could do that. No, I don't think so. Yeah, you're right. It did kind of line up. We'd use the soda stream on these and then and eventually we got like a CO2 tank when we wanted to get a little bit more intense and you know, one that you could just have around your house. And so we would carbonate. Once we kind of like got the alcohol to a place we liked, we would just make different flavors. We did like our lime, we did our cranberry, we did our grapefruit, and we would just carbonate it and kind of see what tastes good. And would you bring it to parties and stuff? Yeah, we would bring it in these glass bottles because canning is like expensive, even getting a, like a home canner, but you could get like a little capper for bottles easily on Amazon. And so we would like carbonate it, pour it into bottles. And we brought some to like a Super Bowl party. I remember where we brought a lot. We'd bring it to really wherever we could get people to taste it. And we'd have different versions. We'd have maybe one bucket of one grapefruit and one bucket of another and kind of just see what people thought. That's our whole customer testing out process was like we would make this stuff in our houses and we still do this today even though we have more people to taste it but we would make it in our houses and then bring it out to our friends and see what people think about it and we learned a lot on the flavoring and what people were looking for and that was kind of like our whole r&d process it seems like cool like you'd be the guys everyone wants to see now right if you're bringing free alcohol and it's kind of different you know i mean what was all the feedback you got i mean was there any negative because to me you know people might say they don't like a flavor or anything but it seems like i think i could see it or maybe anybody else even if they're not a business person they could see the vision that they're like oh this is cool this could work yeah you're right some people like flavor some don't that's just how it is but the thing what we liked was people were always surprised at the sugar content and the calories they drink these things and we'd say yeah it's only 100 calories one carb and that was always like almost like an unbelievable thing to people, which is what we were going for. Like, that's why we started tinkering around with these seltzers in 2017 was it's pretty incredible. You can have something that tastes that good is 5% alcohol and isn't that bad for you. Like, this is what we were trying to do this whole time. And so people were always surprised at that. So that's kind of the feedback we would get most was it kind of validated the category for us, even though there were only maybe a couple brands sold on shelves at the time, but there was something there. Like everybody said the same thing where they couldn't believe that there was only like one carb in these things. 
And so even more so than learning that they like the tastes of these things, which is kind of, you know, some people like taste, some don't. It was learning that the concept is something that people would buy was the most important part of those kind of like early parties that we would sort of fix at. Just as comparison, but how much would a regular beer have with calories and carbs there? Oh, you can get like high up, like 20, 30. I mean, if you're going to like a thick beer, I mean, it's pretty high up there. Whereas light beer, you you can be under 10 and it's a little bit easier. But most people at the time were drinking vodka soda to cut carbs. Like anyone at a bar would order that. And it doesn't taste that good, in my opinion. It's kind of bitter and you're drinking it just to cut carbs. You're not really enjoying the taste that much. Whereas seltzer seemed to kind of like, everyone's ordering these vodka sodas anyways. This tastes better. There might be something here. So that was kind of the idea there. And so eventually in 2017, you kick it off at like, like who's manufacturing? Just tell us about finally kicking off. Cause again, thanks for sharing the story of how you got started. I think that's almost the coolest part, you know, to me and anyone listening is you started in your apartment. And I think the most frustrating part for me, if I were you, is that you have to wait so long to see if it tastes good. <laughs> yeah. A couple of weeks. Because <laughs> like some people, <laughs> you could start a business within a week or a couple of days, to be honest, or like something, do something on the website. But for this, like every iteration, you're like uh, minimum waiting three weeks <laughs> to see if it's good. Oh yeah, it's tough. And honestly, like studio apartments are not ideal for this. So like you do this thing in the end where like it's called cold crashing, where you essentially like, bring the temperature way down so that the yeast all goes to the bottom of the container and you can filter it easier. <laughs> in a brewery, you have a big tank and you can do that. It's like jacketed and you turn the temp down. But in a San Francisco apartment, you take all your food out, you take all your shelves out of your fridge, you turn the fridge down all the way. And so you eat, take out for like a few days there, and then you get that to work. And between having the juice everywhere and all that, there was like mice in the building. It was just like, it's not an ideal way, but we found a way to do it. And I, I think that like, that's kind of the cool thing for me and Mike too, is, I mean, anyone can do this stuff if you're just really trying hard and get creative with it. So we kind of just found a way. Okay. And then like I said, from there, from finding the way to actually distributing it, like tell us about those steps. But before that, your mixing company the that you were doing before, was that to just break even? Was it like you actually, you're both y'all making money? No, it's profitable. Okay. So how much income were y'all bringing in with that plus your businesses? Not a lot. The margin on the mixtures was good. So they were technically profitable. But the business was not. I mean, we were, you had storage costs, R&D, like selling costs, whatever. And so, I mean, we were like, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars at that point of selling mixers. So it was very small business, even on the mixer side compared to how it is today. That was still like actively being grown. And so that was important for us not to take our eye off that ball because we'd spent so many years growing the mixers and still are. And so while we were doing this thing that we thought was going to be a much bigger category than the cocktail mixer category, we were still spending most of our time selling the mixers and trying to make those successful in the stores that they were sold. Damn. All right. This is a great point. Cause even though it's all just underneath the same company name, kind of right. Basically it's almost like another company when you're doing the seltzer. It is. It's so different. Yeah. Put it in perspective. Like this is the fun part to me is always, you know, experimenting and stuff. But then like you said, you can't take your eye off the mixer company. If that's finally just making some money for y'all. Wow. That's hard to do. For sure. And people told us that they're like, why are you guys moving your, the time in your brains over to something else? Like keep on this. But we had time during the R&D of it. And so, but that's tough. Like they're totally run in different ways. These two product lines, one having alcohol and one not. So it was definitely an adjustment to like kind of integrate that into the company. So yeah, you must've had more than 24 hours in a day to be able to do all this, huh? Yeah. And this is where I talk about like burnout, where like you start getting into 2018, where we really start manufacturing the seltzers. And that's where it becomes, you know, your day job. And then you're kind of two companies within a company in terms of product lines. And eventually you just, you worry that you're not giving hundred percent at your day job or the other ones. And so you have to be able to be fair and make that jump. 
and just personally, like your, it's more probably your life. I mean, I wouldn't care as much as yeah, if I'm not giving a hundred percent, as long as I'm doing enough that they're happy. I think you need those hours basically just to either you're going to go on or you're not. So, I mean, yeah. How much money did you have saved up when you left your business or left your day job to do the seltzer? I had enough for about a year, not a full year, but you know, the money that I had kind of allocated towards jumping out of that airplane was about giving myself a full year to see if, if this works. And the hope was that eventually we'd be able to pay salaries in that year, which thankfully that happened. And so it worked out, but I'd kind of like built up this year of being able to go out and do fix full time and, and see if we can make this thing happen. Yeah. So you really must have not spent money on anything personally, huh? No, which is tough. I mean, you pause your life a little bit on things. Well, and the reason I'm saying that is because you are still putting money into the other businesses. It's not like, that's the other thing. If you're putting money into the mixing company and you're putting money in the seltzer, and then you have to save your own money too for your personal expenses. Yeah. There's not a lot for travel or like, you know, big dinners, which was tough. I mean, especially late twenties, early thirties, you're at a certain part in your life where people start transitioning to other things. And that was tough for me and Mike to have to say, no, all of our disposable income needs to go into this kind of gambling machine currently and see how this goes. And thankfully it's worked out so far, but yeah, that was basically where we'd spend all of our money was trying to keep fix growing, but really there was no other option. Like the companies we compete with, they're so much bigger than us that like, we have to give everything we can either financially in terms of like the hours in our day. Well, so, I mean, the co-packer for the seltzer, how did we take care of that? Last year, so 2019, so we started producing in 2018, kind of towards the end of 2018. And we'd found a great group up in kind of the North Bay in, in Sonoma County. So like middle of wine country, knows how to make wine. We were able to go to them and say, here's what we've done in our studio apartment. Can you guys do this in this big tank? And they were able to, they were winemakers by trade. And so me and Mike basically purchased canning lines, fermentation tanks, you know, a lot of capital spent in order to build a canning line to start canning hard seltzers that this group was helping us ferment in Sonoma. So it was kind of a, it was a co-packer, but we'd kind of contributed a lot of stuff to it, but they had a lot of great alcohol making expertise to help us really kind of get this thing first, first launch. And so I think our first ever canning run was like October of 2018 on the seltzers. Is that still when you're at the other business or you, had, you left your nine to five basically at the same time? I was still there. Yeah. I left last in June of 2019. So I was doing the seltzers. For like six months or so. Yeah. About six months. Okay. Yeah. Cause yeah, you, you told us about that. I didn't know how long it took to make this happen as far as the distribution. Yeah. So this is different because when you went to the co-packer, you don't own any of the equipment or anything for the mixing, the mixers that you're doing, but this, yeah, it is almost like you own it. So like, how did you work that out with the people? If you're buying the equipment, you know? Yeah, it was a weird kind of medley, but worked for everybody where like, I mean, we obviously didn't pay for the equipment, but then they would have some other clients that would use it. And so we would get a little bit of money from that essentially as like rental fees off the stuff that we bought. We'd pay them like a fee to make the alcohol. So we had kind of like a weird, like kind of a la carte agreement with them where kind of whoever was contributing something was kind of getting paid for it or we're not paying for something if we contributed it. So like, it was kind of a weird mix, but I mean, there's, again, with starting a company, like you can't just go and make a huge run of something. Like the huge breweries co-packing require you to spend like so much money to do a run where to test a product out, you can't do that. And so we needed to find somewhere where we could just prove the concept, which was still like a lot of money to spend to just prove a concept out. But 
but I think we did it the cheapest way possible. And so we worked with them really from the first run up until the beginning of 2020 until we kind of hit some like scale issues where we needed to go somewhere bigger. We essentially set up shop and we would help on the canning line. I mean, Mike took most of the stuff here because he had quit his job instead of a year earlier than me. And so he was able to be up there helping a lot. And so he kind of took over the manufacturing side of the business. And we really just kind of like essentially built a small little brewery slash canning line in order to kind of get this thing off the ground and start selling. And again, did you purchase equipment or did you not? We did. Okay, you did. That's what I thought you said in the beginning, but then I wanted to clarify. So yeah, again, so when you switch over and you're saying now you do it all yourself, you don't use these guys anymore? So we actually found another co-packer who is a much larger brewery here in the Bay Area who, again, people don't like getting their co-packers too much. I don't like to either. But me and Mike were knew this brewery from college. It was only about like pretty close to where we went to school. And they're a huge brewery. And they were too big for us to work with when we first started off. But towards the kind of beginning of 2020, it became clear that we were going to be doing some pretty huge volumes. And so we kind of got to that point where we got to with the last mixer manufacturer. Not that anything had really gone wrong, but we said, look, there's some big scale things happening here. Like we might need to graduate over to a bigger facility. So now we work with a great brewery who does, you know, has clients that are major retailers that you heard of and also works on making fix again from our original recipe and getting that all made. So now we work with them since the beginning of 2020 to make all of our seltzers. Did you sell back your equipment to the other guys from before? That's what I was wondering. I'm like, maybe you can take that equipment or yeah, how's that work out? We got to this threshold moment where we thought about trying to turn that place into a huge facility, which would have been many more hundreds of thousands of dollars in equipment. And we just knew that that was just, we knew what we didn't know. We didn't want to do that. It was just too much. So we were able to take the canning line that we had and the tanks and sell them to people in the industry because thankfully we're in wine country. People are looking for fermentation tanks all the time and canned wine was getting pretty popular. So we were able to basically exit that situation and move over to this kind of more scalable solution. All right. I said I was not going to plug anymore. I'm going to do one more because the alcohol industry. This episode 136 is Wine from a Keg with Jordan Kivelstadt. It's Free Flow Wines. He actually did canned wine. I know Free Flow. They were like right next door. Uh, right now? No, no, no. So up in Sonoma. So we worked with a smaller group and, and Free Flow is bigger than the group we were working with, but very familiar with them and awesome to see they've had a lot of success. They're one of the early canned wine, keg wine people. Yeah. I think it might have been even the first one. Yeah, maybe. I knew I didn't want to do another episode that I said we were talking about plugging another one with alcohol. But it's funny, like anyone that I've talked to, though, has been kind of innovative, you know, and that's what you need to be. It seems like in this space or else it's not going to work. Right. If you're not being innovative in this, like you're just being another brewery, you know, you're only going to grow so much. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I'm very familiar with those guys. It's a good group over there. Okay, that's funny. So yeah, that's episode 136. If you all want to check it out at the end of this episode, because, hey, this is a great one so far. Right. When you say, Ron? Hey, you're the judge. I appreciate it. Just happy to be here. <laughs> I'm having fun. So yeah, I mean, we were fortunate to find a really scalable solution and a great partner brewery at the beginning of 2020, which we think is going to be fixed long time home where we can make our real fruit hard seltzers in a really high quality way at a big scale, which is needed for the customers and retailers that we're working with now. So that's kind of similar to how we've found a home on the mixers. We're happy to have found a good home on the seltzers too. With that other place too, and then going to this new co-packer or you call them a co-packer, right? For this one as well? Yeah. Uh, making sure. Were you ever worried about like giving them your ingredients or like how you were doing it? And I would say this mainly because it's kind of is a new product. You know, I think everyone's always scared someone's going to steal their idea or whatever. But to me, I'm like, this has more validation of like having that thought process. 
Yeah, no, I, I do. We're paranoid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would be too. Yeah, I'm feeling it. Even like certain retailers that want to know that you don't have certain ingredients in your product want to know exactly what's in it, which is good. We're always paranoid giving our ingredients to people, but in the end, there's just nothing you can do unless we're going to like spend like a million dollars and do all this ourselves without anybody knowing what we're doing, which is not financially possible. You eventually just have to trust somebody with it. And there is like a certain comfort to knowing like, even if somebody got this recipe, there's so much you have to go do to get this to happen. But we were pretty close to the vest on our process. Like when we were talking about, especially our alcohol fermentation, which is not, you know, it's, it's pretty unique how we ferment our alcohol to make it how it is. And I get emails from people asking Fix to make them alcohol for hard seltzers or asking us how we do it. And those don't get returned. I mean, the stuff's all out there. You can learn how to do it. We did. And it took a long time to do it. And so I think even if somebody got their hands on like the Fix email server and got it all figured out or something like there's still like a lot to do there. So eventually you just have no choice. You find the right group to work with, you trust them or you don't, and you give them the recipe. And, and in the end, this group that we work with now has actually helped us get it even better. And so there's also the alternative side of that where a group that has maybe more expertise than you and manufacturing can actually help improve what you're doing. Do you have them like signed a non-disclosure when you go over there to do it? Oh yeah. NDAs everywhere. Yeah. And that's industry standard. So before you even sit down to a meeting, you have those NDAs, but then obviously eventually you have to start ordering ingredients. And so it all comes through and, and batching and doing the recipes, but yeah, everyone has an NDA. So, so there's some trust there. Yeah. These other people are sending you emails to make their product as well. I mean, I get if you're like, Hey, I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but you didn't want to do it and make money from that as far as like making their beverage line. No, we don't have time. I mean, we're trying to grow fix to beat these big brands that are capitalized with millions of dollars more than us with dozens of more people than us. We don't have time to be a co-packer. My whole, like, and Mike's being now is just laser focused on growing the fixed real fruit hard seltzer brand and the fixed mixers. And anything taking away from that we see as, as hurting the business, as well as in that specific sense, like literally creating a competitor for yourself. And so I like to like tell people they're getting in the business and give some advice where I can, but in terms of giving them recipes and creating product for them, like we just don't have the time and don't really want to. No, I'm feeling, you know, I mean, I think I would be feeling the same way too, but it's just like, I didn't know if it was easy money to do that or different ways of thinking about it. But it sounds like the main idea was like you having this focus on the brand after you've kind of gone through all these hurdles. And again, understand you're not wanting to share a recipe, but I guess I don't know if you eventually have to, if you're going to make their own line and whatnot. And again, if you're creating your own competitors, it seems like there's just so much competition now that I'm like, maybe it does make sense. Maybe because people pivot from time to time, you know what I'm saying? So that's the only reason I was throwing that out there and wondering what you thought. It's a whole business. I mean, our co-packer, that's essentially what they do. I mean, they product for the people and it's a huge, huge business. It's just not our business. I'm sure that they'll eventually find a co-packer in the same way that we did and we'll be able to do it. Yeah. So what's your business then as far as the way you think about it? Our business is what it's always been. It's trying to bring a better for you bar to people. And the way that that's kind of come to fruition in 2020 is with the seltzers mostly in trying to bring an authentic ingredient, which we believe results in better taste, hard seltzer to the category, as opposed to what existed before fixed real fruit hard seltzer came out. And so our business right now is really trying to get our seltzer onto as many retail shelves as we can and tell our story to as many people as we can about real ingredients kind of making for this real taste in these seltzers. While at the same time, growing the mixer business into some more retailers and letting people know that you don't need these sugar-packed margaritas or palomas. And so we're kind of at this level where now is a brand where it's starting to become a little bit more identified with people as this brand where you can always rely on for all natural, better for you drinks. 
but really kind of my day to day has been heavily trying to get our products mostly into like large grocery stores, which has been kind of the last two or three months right now as we head into 2021, like fighting for shelf space and trying to prove that fixed mixers and fixed hard seltzer have a home on those shelves and kind of this real fruit product is something that people are looking for in the hard seltzer category. So your differentiator is that you have the real fruit versus like other bigger brands. Like you said, was it Truly and White Claw? Do they not? They don't. So it's mostly natural flavors or extracts. And another thing where, I mean, we've seen some smaller brands in the last six months or so kind of popping up doing something similar to fix, but always using like fruit concentrates. So we don't use concentrates. It's always pure, not from concentrate juice that we really go out of our way to source. I mean, we just released a mango where we sourced a puree from Ecuador, just knowing how high quality that was after searching in a lot of different places. And so what the main competition is, those larger brands are generally natural flavors, extracts, a few other things that you know you wouldn't necessarily recognize those ingredients. And so we don't like that. We want to keep it really clean, keep it real. And we think that it also makes for a massive increase in taste. We do blind taste tests a lot. And so that's kind of how we're trying to be the foil against those big guys is being authentic and, and giving some more real taste to consumers. Yeah. How are you able to find that? I'm so glad you said that, that finding the juice from Ecuador, you know, cause that's something else, you know, you trying to get in there. I almost feel like maybe I wasn't thinking, I'm like, oh, the co-packer will know where to get the juice, you know, or you, so you're the one who has to find out where those products are. Right. As again, this is concepts that, you know, we're talking overall about your business, but since you've let us go longer on this interview, which I appreciate, we can dive in some of these details that I think help people understand all these little intricate things of why, even if someone just got your formula, like you have to do all these other things. You put juice concentrate next to normal juice. It's a totally different product. And like a juice from, so the mango, for example, like we tried mangoes from India, tried some from California. We tried them from your neck of the woods in Florida, tried Guatemala. But in the end, we liked this one in Ecuador. And what we were doing was we have this concept internally called farm to fizz where it's end product is reliant on real grown fruit. And so we do a lot of research. So like our grapefruit, we determined that these grapefruits called Rio Reds in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas were less acidic and so tasted sweeter without having to have more sugar in them. And so that became... Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So this is the level we go into, like rather than just your normal grapefruits. And so we, that was a, a trip down to Texas. We got to know that. And in the end, we work with a processor that's able to, that has the machines to press those or make those purees. And so we don't have to order every single time from the individual farm. We're able to kind of find where we want this and then work with a local processor to get that. But I mean, that's years of finding those best sources of fruit. And the mango is just our most recent one where eventually we tried these mangoes from a partner of ours that does help with a lot of purees. And they kind of gave us some Ecuadorian mangoes. And it was very clear that this is something that people in the US were kind of familiar with in terms of mango taste. And it just had this nice subtle sweetness. But yeah, I mean, those things take time and I mean, years of relationships to be able to like let people know what you like and get to know these farms. And so that's something that White Claw and Truly don't have to deal with because they don't put juice in it. It's easier to just kind of just go through natural flavors houses. And so that's an added expense as well as like extra work for fix. But like we think in terms of the output of the product, there's no way we would do anything different in terms of how it turns out. Tell me again about the grapefruit and the pH in Texas. And like when you say you found local puree, is that local in Texas or local in California? Local in Texas. So our lime juice comes from California sometimes of year. Sometimes it comes from Southern California. Sometimes it comes from Mexico. It just kind of depends on the season. But the grapefruit was one where, I mean, we'd been to Texas and had heard about these and we're kind of just testing some grapefruits that we'd gotten from the grocery store. And these ones called Rio Reds, which is this deep red grapefruit, really just struck us as tasting 
you didn't have this bitterness too much, but a little bit. So you knew it was grapefruit. And we looked into why that was and we asked people in the industry and, and yeah, it's, it's less acidic than your regular pink grapefruit. And so your sugar content's not higher. It goes down a little smoother which we thought would be good for a seltzer. And so what we did was we found like a really good group of suppliers in the Rio Grande Valley, which is like one of the best places to produce grapefruits in the country and is unique for these Rio Reds in order to source these, get them pressed, and then ship them over to California and drums to put into our grapefruit hard seltzer. I just Googled Rio Grande Valley. That's the very Southern tip of Texas, right? In case anyone's wondering. Yeah, you're like almost in Mexico, basically. It's deep. Okay. And so, yeah, you, you just fly. Where do you fly? And then you drive over there? Yeah, we were in Austin. We weren't too deep. Like we weren't in San Antonio, but I mean, people in Texas. You could taste the grapefruit there, you're saying, because it's right around that area. It's farmed there, you're basically saying. Yeah. So it's kind of a big deal in Texas. Like they'll have little signs about them when they're like really in season. And so people knew about them and we were kind of exploring some different ones. And I think we were in like an HEB and trying a bunch of different grapefruits and bringing them back to our buddy's house. So that was kind of just, we'd heard about it and knew next time we were in Texas, we need to look into this. And so thankfully we were able to you know eat a bunch of grapefruits while we were there. And that's kind of been what we do on all of our stuff. Like our berries come from the Seattle area where Mike is from Seattle. And he's like, yeah, there's blackberries on the side of the highway. They must have some pretty good ones. And so we kind of just try to find ingredients where they're grown at their best and try to make that a more authentic taste in the seltzers. But when you started, did you just get all the fruits from your local grocery store? Like when you're in your apartment? Yeah. Okay. We similar to the orange juice. These are all stepping stones for anyone who's listening. It's like, it's awesome that hearing your story now and how you made the product better. And now we can like, we definitely understand how it could be better, but it started just by going to the grocery store. Either you got to always keep improving your product or trying to. And so that's how you're able to do it. It's going to, you just thought, I guess on one day, or maybe it made sense that you're like, why don't I go where the freshest, you know, of these ingredients are and try to make that your differentiator from these other brands. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, the stepping stone metaphor is like perfect because like you can't just fly to Texas and look at grapefruits. Especially when you have a nine to five, right? Yeah, we can't do that. And so it's like, I mean, we would, I remember we got like an old walla of grapefruit or something and we would put that in the sparkling water and see how that tasted. Or we'd get some limes over at Safeway and we'd squeeze those. I mean, we're in San Francisco, so tech is huge here. And there's this concept of like an MVP, like the minimum viable product. And that's hard to do in consumer packaged goods because physically printed things like minimums come into it. And so like the minimum run of things is kind of tough, but we would always look at these things and said, okay, well, what's like the minimum thing we could do to prove that hard seltzers are going to be popular? And that's where we got to, all right, well, I can make the alcohol in the house. Like we can go to the Safeway and get these fruit. We can test these things out and we can give them to friends at parties and see what they think. That's just kind of how you get started. And then eventually it became big enough where we could go and find those like really great suppliers with large amounts of this stuff. But it just built on itself. Like there was never like a big moment where Fix came out and wrote like a million dollar check to make some huge leap. The whole company has been gradual and that's why it's been so long with like seven years, it's been a slow, gradual build that thankfully in the last year or two has like really spiked. And a lot of that's been from the seltzers. From the spiked seltzers. Pun intended there. Yeah. But I was going to say, tell me the difference because I, now I understand what you're saying about like maybe fruit juices versus having it pureed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And concentrates, which is very different too. Yeah, exactly. I don't know the difference. I mean, and I'm sure you didn't know before you started. Tell me, yeah, first the difference. Yeah, concentrate. Yeah. So I mean, you say it. <laughs> it concentrates on that. 
we had looked at using concentrates in our mixers early on and we like tested that against the like not from concentrate juices and it wasn't until we tried them head to head where we saw like whoa this is radically different so what a concentrate is is basically like in order to cut back partially this is a reason to cut back on cost of shipping what a concentrate does is essentially like boils the juice down and removes all the water and so it just becomes this less volume that you can fit into a drum. So you can fit like, and then when you get it to wherever it's being manufactured into something, then you add back the water. And so you save a bunch in freight costs and you can fit multiple drums of grapefruit juice into just one drum of grapefruit concentrate. But throughout that process, I mean, you're doing all this stuff to it and you lose so much flavor. It's night and day. And so when we saw that difference, we knew that there was just no way we could ever use concentrates despite it being a big time cost saver and it can make your life a lot easier, especially because of storage where it's easier to store too, whereas ours, you know, it's fresh juice. You have to freeze this, you have to use it. There's less of a, you have a tight supply chain. So it's easier to go concentrates, which is why you'll see a lot of concentrate in products in the grocery store, but the flavor is just not the same. And we just didn't want to do that. So what's the price difference in concentrate? It's pretty big. I don't know what it is today, but I'd say you are paying like 30 to 50% less than real juice to go with concentrate. And then again, you're saving on freight costs too, because you're getting more quote unquote finished juice by with less drums that you bring in because you're just adding in the water. So it's a huge price saver. It's easier on logistics. It'll make your product taste terrible compared to regular fruit. And so we knew right away that really looks nice from a margin perspective, but we didn't think you could build a business on that because it just wouldn't taste that good. If you used real fruit juice, then people would taste it. They'd come back, they would like it. And then you could grow from there and start buying larger quantities of real juice and, and getting your costs down, which is what we're doing now. But it was definitely something we looked at pretty closely and, and said, you don't want to cut quality here just to maybe save a lot of money in the short term. If that's an option, Let's stick with this. And then in the long run, we think we'll get our volume up and our costs will go down, which is thankfully what's happened. Just a simple understanding because audio only for anyone who's listening. I remember my parents back and think of one of like a kid, sometimes they'd use that orange concentrate for orange juice. So it was, it was a little frozen canisters, like a can, the Minimate or whatever it was, like you open that can, put it in water and mix it up. That's the exact same thing, but on a huge scale for your business. Exactly. Just imagine that in like a drum. It's the same thing. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So that's the difference between the concentrate and what your puree is what we call it or? Yeah. So the puree is for the mango specifically, but for all of our others, we have juices. Mango is just thick. And so you have to puree it, but like the grapefruit, we juice. And so it's in the industry, it's called NFC, not from concentrate juice. And so that's what we use in, in all of our products. Well, then what's the difference between that and let's say the bigger companies like White Claw and Truly, they're not even using the concentrated juice. Are they using something else? Right. They're just using like natural flavors or extracts. Yeah. I have no idea what that means. Or I think oh. most people don't <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? So I thought it was a different level than the concentrate and you're saying it is. Yeah. It's, I mean, I couldn't even give you a straight answer because there's like, it's crazy. It's like a spectrum. Like there's, there's a spectrum of natural flavors where some are closer to the real thing and some are pretty far, but you're essentially like distilled something down to like just this like really acute form. And if you tasted it, it tastes like alcohol almost. And it, just smells like 
chemically kind of. And it's just like, it's far away from its original taste. You've gone another big step away from the real stuff when you get into natural flavors. And some companies like LaCroix have gotten in trouble for the ones that they use, which have been tested to show some negative things. And then you have groups that compete with LaCroix, like Spindrift, that use real fruit juice and don't do that, that consumers are starting to like more because they've seen that natural flavors is kind of this nebulous term. And full disclosure, we do use some natural flavors in Fix to offset the different harvests of our fruit, where Fix will taste the same every month of the year you have it, despite us sourcing fruit from different places throughout the year. All of ours are all natural, I'd say are on the very good part of that spectrum, but we do use some to kind of blend with fruit juice to make it taste better. But only using it solely in flavoring something can make it taste, I'd say like artificial, which is really kind of what it is if you're only using that. And so that when we tried seltzers from these bigger brands in 2017 and 18, that's where we kind of got that like chemically taste from and thought that somebody should introduce some real ingredients to this rather than just rely on natural flavor, which can be a pretty nebulous word to put on a can. I had to look up nebulous, by the way. This guy, we're talking about the smart guy here. No, far from it. That means in the form of cloud or haze. Yeah, because to me, like the same thing. I'm like, natural flavors, that sounds good. Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, I get it. That sounds better than the concentrated and your puree. Yeah, the language is like almost funny. Like you look at some products and like even outside of beer and you'll see like naturally flavored with other natural flavors. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, so it should be really called unnatural flavors. Yeah, or at least not as much as like what is using real juice. And so, I mean, again, natural flavors, they are all natural. I mean, they're safe. They're in, I'd say, the vast majority of any food or beverage product that we have. But we wanted to have that not be the only thing. We thought that you should introduce some authenticity to this too. And that's where the juice comes in. And the flavors are a very small part of what we do. And it's more about ensuring consistency despite the different harvests in our fruit. If it was your choice, you wouldn't use natural flavors at all, but you only use it because the different seasons to make sure it's the same taste overall all year long. Yeah, we tried it without. I mean, that was kind of the idea. As I mentioned, sometimes we get our limes from SoCal. Sometimes we get it from Mexico. The grapefruits are on different farms. And so things can change. And we kind of said, okay, if you're going to do this, hopefully for multiple years, you're going to have this business. You need these things to taste the same so that customers can be familiar with it. And so we do use a small amount just so when we try one, we say this tastes a little bit different than last month's run or something like that. And we'll be able to alter it a little bit just to keep the taste consistent so that people that like Fix can expect it to be the same every time. It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow, I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. Hey, nice meeting you. Hey, same here, Austin. Well, cool. Well, thanks for joining that call on Friday. No, no problem. Thanks to you for having an awesome podcast and asking a blunt question. So do you charge for this or how does it work? You just want to help the Patreon members or? I just want to help you. Free call. Okay. Wow. It's like extending shelf life on certain products. Like there are certain products, like I think this comes to mind, like maybe like marshmallow paste or something like that. That might last for 10 years, right? Versus like there's some products that, okay, because they use a little bit of enhancement, they can stay on there two weeks instead of two days or something like that. So I think it's the same thing you're saying. Like you have to have some consistency. And if you just, if I just ate oranges from all across the country and it always tastes a little different, but by using some, you're saying 
it helps that being consistent versus the bigger companies, they just use that solely and none of this, not the concentrate or the juices that you actually use. That's right. And so if you put those side by side, and we do this a lot, we do a lot of blind, before COVID, we did a lot of blind taste tests where you'd have certain brands next to fix. And it's pretty incredible how much we get chosen over these larger brands that you've heard of. Juice makes a big difference. And that authentic taste, people really like that as opposed to kind of that more artificial one. So we think it's a big difference maker. And so that's why we keep it in the product and they're really trying to build the whole brand off of it. Walking us up today, you made that switch in 2020. What have you learned, I guess, in 2020? Before this year, I mean, we would kind of, we would sell in San Francisco and around California and we were in a couple of big stores, but this year was really like our year to prove to retailers that had let us into a few stores that fix sells well against some big competition, which thankfully it, it did. I mean, we sell incredibly well compared to brands that are spending millions of dollars in these markets. And so what we've been able to do towards the latter part of this year is, you know, you have these meetings with these retailers for 2021, trying to get larger, more permanent shelf space. And so that's kind of been our whole thing the last few months. And what our year will be next year is like, which shelves can we expand out in with fix to retailers like Walmart or Target or Kroger? Like you kind of proved the data this year, not selling some other hard seltzers. And now it's like, how far can we expand now? That's kind of where we're at now is, is grow this fast, but grow it in a smart way. Yeah. Well, what's your day-to-day -day like now? Uh, Zooms, <laughs> endless Zooms and PowerPoint. For what? Just talking to distributors? Yeah. Talking to potential distributors, talking to retailers. So it's really split mostly between like Zoom and PowerPoint. So I'll do these PowerPoints, putting together pitches for the retailers, summarizing how Fix has been doing compared to its competition, our marketing, our management, our production, essentially like the company in a PowerPoint slide. And so like, I don't know, too much of my day is PowerPointing. But then eventually you get a meeting and you go on these Zooms with a large grocery store and you walk through the PowerPoint and explain why you think Fix should be on their shelves. And so that's mostly my day-to-day -day as the person where I've kind of gravitated towards like the revenue creation part of the business in terms of sales and marketing. And Mike has kind of gravitated towards the production side and managing our employees as our COO side of the business. And so we have a pretty good division here right now. And Mike's kind of gearing up in terms of upping production big time for next year. So that's his day-to-day. -day. And then mine's really trying to make sure we have a lot more shelves next year. Well, I guess maybe this has actually helped you with COVID if you're able to get on all these meetings versus like flying and doing it in person and whatnot, you know? It has. For a company like this, where we want to spend our money making sure the product sells well for these retailers, to cut back on a flight to the East Coast or something, like, and also to only takes, you just start up your computer. There's no, it doesn't take as much time. And so we've been able, I think, to do so much more this year, not having to travel to these meetings in order to make those shelves more successful. And then also just strictly like, thankfully, fix was our customers were all grocery stores. We call them, I mean, there's off-premise where basically you buy alcohol to bring and drink somewhere else. And then there's on-premise where you buy alcohol to drink it there. So like bars, restaurants, the places that have been hit hardest during COVID, that was a very small part of our business. And so we've had like a lot of growth this year in terms of having big grocery sales. And we're trying to pay that forward into doing stuff for bars and restaurants that have been struggling, but it's actually kind of net put fix it, not a bad spot, thankfully. But how about personally, like what time do you wake up and what time do you end? Is it different? Like, are you working those crazy hours as before or do you have more balance now? No, it might sound like a little lazy, but it's easier than before, which I don't think it is. Like we're working two jobs and those early mornings were to fit more stuff in when we had the day jobs. But I'm usually up around six and I'll try to go for like a run or something and have like a little bit of time to myself and then jump into emails. And so I'll work like seven to six or seven 
each day during the week. And these days have tried getting some more time on weekends and tried to find some balance there because got a little crazy for a while. And so I all work a little bit on the weekends, but I definitely have more time to myself now than we did when we were kind of pulling two jobs. Definitely see that, you know, and it's, you're probably more productive in the hours, obviously now going forward, what do you see for the future and where could someone probably, I guess they could find where your stuff is by the store locator on your website. Yeah. Can I do a plug here for where we can buy it? <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Yeah. Cause I was just about to do it myself. I was going to get, yeah, tell you to plug it, but then I was, appreciate it. Yeah. I was going to go ahead and find it somewhere near you. Yeah. So we have a store located on our website, fixdrink.com. And our biggest retailers now are, are Whole Foods, Safeway, HEB in Texas, Kroger, particularly like QFC in the Northwest, Costco, and so Rayleigh's in Northern California. So Fix is now starting to pop up into some more places. And I think you'll see us in, in hopefully a lot more shelves in 2021 if these PowerPoints worked at all. It's expanding quickly. And our goal here is really to not just be a small craft brewery. I mean, we want to compete with White Claw and Truly as a kind of authentic alternative in the hard seltzer space. So a truly authentic, truly authentic claw at their share of the category, not take it lightly, but light. <laughs> I see what you did there. I know there's a light there. Two on the spot. We're growing fast and we're working hard and we'll be hiring. And I think the biggest thing is like just trying to get into some more grocery stores. And I think that we'll, we'll be not only some more stores next year, but also some more states, but we're kind of sticking around. We call it kind of Texas West is like where Fix is going to be for a little while. And we're trying to kind of go deep rather than be everywhere and kind of in a shallow way. You're trying to hire. Should someone try emailing you if they think they could be a good hire? Yeah, info at fixdrink.com. That goes to me and Mike. And so if anyone's looking for anything in the state of Texas or West or just wants to learn a little bit about more about the business or anything, we're always down to chat, which is why I love doing stuff like this. Yeah. And again, yeah, just go to his website. You can do the store locator, F-I-C-K-S-drink.com. So yeah, thanks again for coming on. Like you said, Ron, I really appreciate your story. You walking us through with the, the ups and downs as far as like making a beverage business. It's not just even coming up with the formula. It's like when you walked us down the road of finding these products and where you have to go to actually get them. Like even if someone had your formula, this is the thing. It's like all these other little things you have to do to get where you are. So we appreciate you stopping by. And if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the podcast, is there a best way for them to reach you personally? Yeah, you can just shoot an, an email to Ron, R-O-N, at fixdrink.com. And I'll answer that. Thanks again for coming on, Ron. All right. Thanks so much. Perfect. What was that ding to end it for us as well? That was my Gmail saying something. I don't know what that was, <laughs> but uh, that was awesome, man. Thank you for taking time out of your day too to talk about this stuff. That was just a lot of fun for me. Are you looking for more product-based interviews? Well, don't worry, mother effer. I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of OptiFuse or an old favorite episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127, that's 127, with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34 with Don DiCostenza of Pedigo Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Ann Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number 29, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads, or Patreon episode 3, where I talk with Rick Martinez 
about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now.